Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Um, my name is Julia Corsi, and I'm a senior associate uh, on the health and life sciences team here at GC, um, dialing in from London. Um, I'm joined today by a GC advisor and clinician, Dr. Harpreet Sood, uh, and my colleague Lila, um, a senior associate in the UK uh, politics and policy practice. I'm very pleased uh, to welcome you to this Global Council session, um, which is the fourth installment uh, in a series looking at um, different aspects of the UK's uh, regulatory landscape, and we're going to focus specifically um, on life sciences uh, today and the outlook for the sector. So Lila, uh, Harpreet, welcome to you both and thank you ever so much for joining me today. Um, to provide just a little bit of context and background for those dialed in, uh, in on the call, um, over the last several months, GC has been working uh, with businesses in the health and life sciences sector to kind of help them understand the short, medium uh, and long-term implications um, of the UK's of the outlook of the of the life sciences sector in the UK, uh, kind of since the start of the pandemic, um, and and since leaving uh, the EU's regulatory uh, orbit, I think you know. Suffice to say, we've seen a flurry of policy initiatives and announcements over the course of uh, the last few months, uh, which we'll look to cover over the course of the next thirty minutes or so, and kind of explore where the sector as a whole fits into the government's wider uh, agenda around you know innovation overall and its um post-covid economic plans i think least of all because you know the sector has emerged kind of as a, a key uh, priority um over the course of the last 12 months given the nature of the of the pandemic coupled um with its exit from the eu um just before kicking off um a few admin points. I just wanted to remind all of those dialed in and to encourage our listeners uh, to ask and send through um, any questions via the Q&A function um, at the bottom of your screen on Zoom, or you can reply directly to the confirmation email uh, you received when signing up with your question, um, and someone uh, will pick it up for us. And um, we will endeavor as best we can to get to any and all questions uh, over the course of the session. So um, without further delay, uh, Lila, if I could turn to you in the first instance, um, I think it would be useful to understand um, at a high level how the life sciences sector fits in um, with the government's kind of post-COVID EU exit economic plans. I think we've seen a shift in framing, kind of pivoting away from, from the industrial strategy, which focused on kind of sector-specific interventions to a focus on you know, on more wider kind of innovation and growth across um, the board. So can you just walk us through that um, a little bit and kind of the interplay also with um, R&D policy? Sure, thanks, Julia. So I think the problem for um, the life sciences sector is it's not totally clear what has emerged to replace industrial strategy, the industrial strategy, the 2017 version, and who owns it. So the Treasury have pushed a more overarching vision, as you say. This emerged a bit in the plan for growth, which was published alongside the budget. But Bayes still technically owns 
this bit of policy, including the life sciences sector deal, um, which the government has kind of implied will continue to exist, even in the absence of um, the kind of wider industrial strategy. As I kind of understand it at the moment, Bayes are kind of looking to define what this means for them in terms of their interventions and funding. Um, Treasury are not going to fund all of this. And from a Bayes perspective, um, the policy direction has come from um, Treasury. So it's difficult for them to kind of fully own it. Um, there are some kind of clear points for Bayes and um, kind of with the help of Treasury to set out a new direction. So the forthcoming in innovation strategy will obviously be key. And there are two upcoming R&D strategies focusing on places and people and culture. But ultimately, while there's a bit of a land war still going on over funding, that might hold up a new kind of clear policy emerging. Um, and, and how do you think that this is impacting kind of the government's view on life sciences and, and kind of how far they're considering the sector in these plans? Well, I, th I think that the life sciences sector clearly still has a kind of strong pitch to make for kind of three reasons. First is kind of the vagueness of what has emerged means that the industry can have quite an important role in kind of shaping the frameworks and models. There's kind of a bit of a vacuum, which I think the life sciences sector is kind of beginning to fill. I also think the life sciences industry are kind of the obvious recipient of the government's 2.4% R&D spend target. So kind of without the life sciences sector, that, that target doesn't mean very much. And thirdly, kind of as you referred to in your introduction, the pandemic has created a kind of real new interest in the industry. It's given a, a real political brand in kind of post-Brexit Britain. And I think kind of begun to um, sort of unpick some of the skepticism around the industry and some of the kind of negative connotations around kind of big pharma, um, which I think the Labour Party kind of tried to leverage in the 2017 election. I also think that you have a, a business secretary who's clearly as supportive of the industry. I think Kwasi Kwarteng, more than his predecessor, is kind of interested in the sector. Um, and I also think, um, I think that the main kind of barrier is perhaps on an institutional or kind of organizational level, because it's not quite clear how prominent the Office for Life Sciences, um, which kind of previously kind of sat within Bayes, will be now that we're realigning industrial strategy. So I think I'd identify that as kind of the main barrier, but I, but I think that there's lots of reasons to kind of be quite positive about the sectors role and, and ability to shape policy yeah and I think you know as you kind of just alluded to it's you know very it's fairly clear the intent and kind of willingness from policymakers to invest uh, in R&D in the sector I just wondered if you could slightly expand on that point what what do you see as some of the kind of institutional barriers here in terms of you know that funding having um sort of the desired impact I suppose in, in over the next seven years? Sure. Um, well, I guess from sort of the funding that goes into sort of base for these types of areas, UKRI have tended to take the lion's share of that funding um, given, given to base for R&D policy. And this has tended to focus on funding business and government scientific interaction with the university community. This works in some ways and kind of is obviously positive, but the independent structure of UKRI provides kind of little scope for the government to be very directive about 
investment. So it's certainly not necessarily a vehicle for new incentives for entrepreneurs and infrastructure and support for corporate incubation and university business parks, kind of the other ways that the life sciences sector might want to see this money being spent. Um, and, I, and I don't think it's quite aligned with the Treasury's focus on attracting kind of right new mm. sort of technologies and developments in life sciences. So I guess you've had HMT begin to kind of claw back some of this funding through the Future Fund, which is the COVID kind of recovery fund <coughs> that's focused on funding startups with an R&D focus and, and the government then takes a stake in those businesses. So I think that's a kind of interesting new, new vehicle, but it's obviously not a kind of plan for for funding the sector and then you've also had the new um advanced research and invention agency um which is the sort of uk equivalent of darpa and was dominic cummings's big idea um, and this provides a kind of new vehicle for siphoning off potentially some of that funding which goes to ukri so the government's initially allocated 800 million pounds i think mm. to this yeah so that's that's a kind of interesting um new vehicle but but I think the thing there is like the way that has been set up is to fund kind of one-off projects, not industries and sectors. And therefore it's not totally clear how this will kind of fit in um, to the industry. So I think just to kind of sum up for Bayes, unless there's new money available separate from those structures outlined, they are gonna be a bit restricted in terms of the specific R&D measures that they can pursue for industry. I think it's more likely that we see DCMS, the Department for Health and Social Care, Treasury sponsoring their own bucket of kind of innovation strategy measures around R&D that are linked to a specific industry. Yeah, definitely. And I think just to echo some of the points you just made on that, I guess the flip side of that coin I would just add, you know, is like how the NHS fits into this as well. I'm sure Harpreet will kind of talk about that in, in, in the next kind of 20 minutes or so. I think the NHS obviously remains a big player, if not necessarily a direct participant, as it were. But I think, you know, COVID has really demonstrated the system's ability to partake in research and kind of be part of that research landscape. So, you know, how you incentivize or look at ways to incentivize that the system is doing that, particularly at a time when NHSE and, and the Department of Health are kind of entering a period of refocusing on the backlog of clinical services is going to be, um, I think, an important thing to watch. Um, Harpreet, um, that I guess fits in nicely to the to the next sort of question. Um, and I think it also is reflective of the work that you and I have been involved in, you know, over the course of the last few months, specifically looking at, okay, so what does, you know, this all mean for the outlook of the sector going forward? You know, what are some of the regulatory changes um, to think about, you know, in the next uh, two to three years um, to drive uh, that innovation across the piece? You know, thanks, Julia. So I guess just a, you know, a few observations to start with, if I may. So, you know, I think in the last kind of last 12 months or so, we, we've seen that the life science sector as a whole um, in the UK is really demonstrated to be one of the world leaders. You know, we've had the recovery trial. We've had 
advances in various therapies for COVID-19. The PM yesterday announced a new task force to look at treatments with monoclonal antibodies. So I think we're in a really exciting space in, in, in the advancements we've seen in that. And then in terms of some of the policies, we've seen obviously the single front door access to data. We've seen a lot of the work that happened with the legislation that was passed through with COPE. So, so on the whole, I think, you know, all these different elements of it coming together has really demonstrated uh, how the UK is positioned to be a world leader in this. However, I do think there is a reflection to be made here on, on being slightly cognizant of how difficult it also has been and how, how you maintain uh, alignment from the centre with uh, what's kind of happening uh, all the way down to how you translate that operationally across the system. And that will remain and, and continue to be challenging because of the different priorities, initiatives, uh, and sorry, incentives that we have that will keep slight on, the, on that friction. And I think we have a challenge there in terms of how do we actually make it a, a more conducive environment moving forward without the urgency we may have had with COVID as an example. I think scale and collaboration will also remain uh, fairly important. Um, you know, the, again, the pandemic has demonstrated that, that the, what the impact of that is and, and why we need things at scale and, and for us to collaborate. And we need to think about how do we continue doing that? And, and the government will, will really have to play an important role in that. And if we look at some of the some of the programs that have been running and, and the scale at which they've been operating, uh, you know, we are really transitioning into new, an era of kind of the population health level research that, that we're seeing. Um, and I think that's been demonstrated not only across uh, various uh, government agencies, but also looking at how that's been trickling down to kind of an operational level. So if we look at the work that's happening with the vaccines, for example, rollout of vaccine and, and understanding where the uptake is, you know, that all plays into the population level research, which is, you know, really significant. But again, we need to think about how do we manage it and, and not to uh, let loose the COVID learnings that we've had and, and really to build on that. In terms of then the outlook for the sector, you know, on the whole, I, I you know, my personal opinion is that it, it remains positive and I think we should celebrate that as a nation, but I think there are several things that will need to be factored in, which will be key. One is again, uh, from the regulator's perspective, the proportionality um, of, you know, reducing the timelines and for approval and also kind of the risk stratification of it. So, you know, the speed and efficacy of setting up trials, which HRA uh, have, done a really tremendous job on in terms of a, making the approval process move from months to days really has created uh, that kind of sense of dynamism that you need which helps by bringing the trials forward and reducing that red tape and bureaucracy and we need to think about again uh, if we were to leverage on this and, and make the life science sector as dynamic as possible how do we maintain that there needs to be a greater focus on prioritization of course there's lots of uh, research potential out there but again just like the, the sheer focus that we've had in COVID over the last few months we need to think about what are some of the key priorities moving forward um, and, and that will then uh, allow the alignment allow the collaboration and, and allow the scale that we've been talking about and, and I think that again is, is work in progress. Uh, the third point being the, the NHS capacity for research I think there needs to be a greater thinking around how do we integrate research into the clinical pathways? How do we think about also the consideration on the workforce? So at the moment, you know, there is a stretch in terms of the people involved with clinical trials, who's doing them, where they're being done. And I think that needs to be played into it because ultimately if we are not applying this in a real world setting or changing the clinical pathways, a lot of the research will just remain research. And I think the NHS needs to consider that. And I know there's various elements of work happening now with the Gold Acre Review and various others programs of work that will hopefully feed into that. And then the final kind of point, which is, 
you know, always the kind of the big elephant in the room is the access to the data, um, which is that, you know, again, hugely important. And, and you know, mm -hmm. the government, the NHS, you know, we've all been saying this for many years now that the NHS is a joined up system and it could have huge benefits for research. But I still think we've never really managed to unlock what the potential are of the data and the speed at which we can really make the data available and, and how we can utilize it. And I think that will remain a really key sticking point unless we really understand from a pol policy legislation and regulatory perspective how we change that or how we evolve that, because ultimately we will not then necessarily achieve a you know, big bang for the buck there uh, unless that's resolved. And I think that still remains a, a very key sticky point. Yeah. And just, I think, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there on on data as it kind of remains the sort of elephant in the room. Um, and I just wanted to kind of expand slightly on this point. Um, I think it might be useful maybe to first talk, uh, turn to Lila on this. I think, you know, as Harpreet has just said, we're all attuned to the, to the value of data, the value that data has demonstrated. And I think there's been potentially a shift in, in public, um, understanding of, of the value of that but I think it's fair to say that you know policymakers are still grappling with the you know data debate so I think it might be useful if you could if you know for our audience to just touch on kind of this data as a strategic asset for the UK and kind of overall and what the government is looking to achieve you know with the various kind of the data strategy the data health strategy uh, the gold Egg review um, etc just to give us kind of a lay of the land? Sure, so I think it's fair to say that the data strategy, the national data strategy itself is a bit of a hodgepodge of things. Um, it kind of could mean all things to all people. It, it picks up some really useful examples of kind of how, how data can be used. Um, but, but with that being said, I think the forthcoming health data strategy is a bit more of a kind of step forward in that it's kind of specifically focusing on those kind of advantages around um, the use of data in health, which Harpreet's referred to. And I think also it's fair to say that Oliver Dowden is showing a kind of clear intention of promoting a more positive vision for data use outside of the EU and not kind of trying to counter some of that scepticism around kind of concerns around privacy, which have kind of previously, I think, plagued policymakers but he's still gonna clearly have some problems kind of operationalizing this. Um, within the sphere of kind of health data policy, there has been a data divide between policy governing data for research purposes and data for operational purposes in the NHS. This kind of divide is probably most evident in the discrepancy between policymakers and stakeholders who are involved in the two issues. Um, I think this reflects kind of primarily institutional tensions between DHSE and NHS England and between research and NHS organizations. And I think there are kind of two main reasons for the kind of skepticism or nervousness. At NHS England, um, I think these reflect kind of resource constraints. Um, all organizations are always kind of seeking to maximize financial allocations and for some stakeholders, the use of kind of clinical records and operational data for research purposes entails a kind of dilution of the resources that might be available for frontline services, which is obviously particularly important in kind of terms of the backlog, the kind of wider problems the NHS will face um, in the coming years kind of post COVID. 
And then I think there's a sort of second point, which is that policymakers and the NHS are also divided on their approach to ethical and reputational issues. I don't think that they've kind of ever really got over this. I think um, COVID will be, yeah, will create some momentum, but the legacy of the care data and DeepMind's agreement with Royal Free has prompted like caution around this. And others are cautious around kind of particularly allowing data access to private sector organizations. And I, I can't kind of stress enough, I think this is a really kind of politicized point kind of when I was working in government, I think it's exactly the sort of thing that ministers might kind of follow through to quite a late stage point and then just get quite nervous about the way in which this can be used. Um, like I think the example of kind of how data and technologies have been used in policymaking in some ways during COVID has been quite positive, but we only kind of have to think about the sort of um, controversy around the use of algorithms in predicting exam results to think about how this, when things go wrong, politicians are very quick to blame the data use, blame the technology, mm -hmm. rather than kind of blame the systems that sit around them. So Dowden is definitely trying to propose to counter this kind of skepticism, but this is putting on organizations like NHSX who link policymakers to kind of NHS delivery, a significant burden to deliver um, both kind of messaging and operationalizing kind of ways of getting around the skepticism. So I think it's, it's all kind of all to play for, but I think mm. the kind of politics of it hasn't really gone away. Right, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Harpreet, I think it would be good to get your view here as well um, from a more kind of life sciences perspective. You know, I think one of the things that's clear is, um, you know, how do we continue to extract data for clinical research, you know, that will directly feed into, into better patient outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. Just before I go on to that, Julia, if I can just quickly pick up on yeah. that. So I, I guess the other sure. challenge that we have in, 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 in terms of data policy is, is the whole, you know, role of accountability. Where does a buck stop? And I think with all the plethora of organizations we have, you know, it just seems like no one is willing to take any final responsibility of mm. what that's going on. I think that really makes the landscape very complex. And I think this is, again, an opportunity potentially for the government to think about, well, if there is one agency where this would sit, where would that be? You know, and Lila's touched upon NHS England, DHSC, there's also NHS Digital, NHS X, and, and various others, including ICO. So, so I think, you know, that needs to be thought through in, in greater detail. And I'm hoping that the Goldacre Review, as well as the white paper on the reform that is being put forward with um, the latest bill on, on healthcare reform can bring some of those elements together because again I think it will be a real missed opportunity if we haven't thought through that. On your point then about um, you know the data for research here and, and how do we then extract the value from data for clinical research I think you know first and foremost it's really important to highlight that actually again what the last 12 months has really demonstrated to the clinical community is the benefits of good research okay so on that basis if I can give you an example you know I've been involved in this myself you know, where, you know, we've had the availability of dashboards, we've had the availability of real-time information on, you know, the vaccine work, for example, if I can use that as an example, and in a not pure clinical research, but more on an operational basis, it's really demonstrated how, where there are gaps, where there's opportunity, where do we drive the uptake of vaccine, and, and that's really fed into the operational lines of, 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 of the research that's been happening, but also hopefully leading into better patient outcomes, and, and I think that has really demonstrated uh, the benefits of it. 
But I think there's a number of dimensions on, on the question that we, we need to consider. The first is in how the conversation with the patients is also changing, right? And how we need to consider the shift to the national dialogue and how do we continue with that? You know, again, if we look at the, the, the large scale trials that we've had in the UK with, with recovery, we've had a, you know, unprecedented number of people coming forward because they want to participate and, and be part of the kind of the national story. And I think that's really encouraging, but we need to think about how do we maintain that and, and how do we keep that excitement going, but also consider that conversation amongst different demographics, different populations, uh, so that we get a true representation of our population. I think the other con consideration that we need to think about is the richness of the data that we need to do clinical research. You know, how do we capture data in a way that's useful? There are still a lot of gaps, a lot of inconsistencies with our data. And I think there needs to be a lot more work on that in, in terms of how we think about that. Then there's a consideration around how do we think about what we want to do in terms of charging for data. And again, you know, that, that this one is particularly a, a um, you know, often, often leads to many discussions and, and, and can cause some controversy for many people. But we need to think about how do we ensure there is a fair return for the NHS and for the wider population. And I think that will need to be built in into the data-driven research agenda, but also the innovative partnerships that we hope to consider. Um, you know, Lila talks about the DeepMind example, but there's others that have had in the past, but we need to think about the fairness of it. And I think that is a much more interesting debate rather than looking at it from a transactional cost basis. You know, how do we, you know, and I think the fairness of it is really important. Yeah. And then the final point being around, you know, as we think about extracting value is, in, you know, the clinician's understanding of research and how do we make it more applicable? Um, because again, if research remains research and we're not applying it in a real world setting, there needs to be a mechanism in place for us to do that. And I think that there is uh, more and more uh, discussion about it, more and more debate about it, but then it all leads into the kind of the clinical research community thinks about data and then the governance process, which again, I won't touch upon because Lila's mentioned it, but from a life science industry perspective, you know, we haven't quite found the position yet where we bring all this together. And I think, uh, and, and therefore perhaps the life science sector hasn't engaged as much on this, but I do believe we're heading towards a new phase where I think a lot of this will come together in a much more conducive industry collaboration. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that's that's hugely valuable and, and right. And I think, as you say, it will continue to be an area of kind of huge opportunity for business and, and for our clients um, overall. I think, uh, Harpreet, Lila, you've given me, um, and I'm sure all of our listeners, a lot to, to reflect on. Um, so I just wanted to, to kind of thank you both for your time today and um, to all those who've, who've dialed in for joining us. Um, I just, you know, as a reminder, you know, GC spends a lot of time thinking through these dynamics and working with clients on how to navigate this kind of ever-changing landscape, um, more so that we can kind of cover on, on a 30-minute call. So, you know, as ever, if you have any questions um, of what we've said today or, you know, kind of any other aspects, please do just um, email me, Lila uh, Harpreet, or, you know, kind of get in touch directly with your um, contact at GC, and, and we'll kind of uh, be willing and, and glad to help and, and continue to the conversation further. So um, once again, thank you all um, for joining and Harpreet and Lila, thanks to you both. Thank you. Bye-bye. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. <laughs>